Welcome to the Salad Days Podcast, featuring interviews with your favorite artists, talking about their musical origins and humble artistic beginnings. Join me, Dave Ulrich, as we travel back to the early days and hang out for a bit. Our journey this week features our special guest, Luther Wright, from the band Luther Wright and the Wrongs, Weeping Tile, and many more. So, one of the things I'll say about this conversation is you're going to learn that uh, Luther is born and bred Kingstonian, and my history with Kingston was coming there uh, to go to university, coming out of Oshawa. Uh, the early days, that very first year being in Kingston was a very rich musical time uh, because of the fact that the very first uh, uh, major label, Tragically Hip album, had just come out, and that was just uh, in the air and everywhere. And you could just feel possibility happening um, on so many levels in, in Kingston. Uh, and so it was, it was a fascinating time to be there. And the way that our story with the inbreds uh, intertwines with uh, both Weeping Tile, Luther, Sarah Harmer, and all of the bands that were our contemporaries at the Toucan, including the Shermans, uh, Los Sea Monsters, uh, too many to mention. This conversation was a great chance to maybe scratch the surface of some of the great things uh, from our days in Kingston, and I'd love to do many more conversations. So hopefully this is the first in a series of conversations with other Kingston greats. But for now, here is the great Luther Wright. Salad days, salad days. Well, I'm glad we're going to be talking about um, the analog era. I mean, uh, I don't know if that's part of the conversation. It is. It is. 90s it is world, sure. but the, where the, the living embodiment, uh, embodiment of the, uh, the transitional people from the time of analog to digital smack dab in the middle, which has been an interesting archival experience over the pandemic is trying to put everything in one digital place and having to round up so many different kind of machines from ADATs to half inch reel to reels. And oh, definitely. Want, want reel to reels in general and that machines and that tapes don't store very, they didn't store very well. A lot of, a lot of dropouts on some classics doing a little bit of editing to piece things back together. Okay, I'll tell you what, let's, um, let's, let's start right in. I've got my sort of opening, the opening topic that I always uh, start with is to just cover some of the, um, something from our common history or something that we've, we've done together. And uh, this might be called the Kingston episode, because I think we're going to cover a lot of things Kingston and you'll, you'll be the first person I've done that with. But uh, Great. I really think of, when I think of you, Luther, the, the, of the many things, one thing that jumps to mind is when we had the chance to come back to Kingston, um, since the time that the band, the Inbreds broke up uh, or stopped playing, whatever, 98, 1998, we only, we've done a few shows, but one of the first uh, kind of reunion type things that we did was uh, an invitation to go back to Skeleton Park. And so we played in the middle of the day and um, when we went up, you introduced us. And uh, what I remember about that was just and I think I hadn't seen you in a long time. And just the things that you said were so, uh, you said such nice uh, complimentary things on the stage in front of everybody. And I remember thinking, wow, uh, you know, Luther's, you know, you, you really, you really tuned into the, the, 
like a lot of things uh, I didn't, you know, almost like I didn't realize that, I don't know, like you were describing things like I, I re- generally just about what we had done in Kingston. And it was, it was really, it was really nice to hear, particularly because obviously we started the band in Kingston and then we ended up going to Halifax. But when we did stop playing, we never had a chance to do a final show in Kingston. And so in some ways that was like our final show. So appreciate those words. And what, what are your, what are your memories of that, of that day? <laughs> That's real sweet, Dave. Um, yeah, well, um, I've been really honored to, uh, to have put five years of hosting and stage wrangling at the Skeleton Park Arts Festival um, from their 10th anniversary for the next five years. So in that time, it was such a great opportunity when introducing bands that I knew from the past because they had booked, they booked such a great lineup of mixed artists, but they always had some stuff like the Rio Statics played one year, Sarah Harmer played one year, uh, Fred Eagle Smith, like so many folks that I had musical experiences with either as a rabid fan in the case of the Rios and then also a fan, but also a collaborator or tour mate or opened or played with a lot of the other artists. So, um, I would, as the years went by, I can't remember what year the inbreds played in my five-year tenure there, but I would, the first year was a real eye-opener to um, make sure I had my ducks lined up in a row and took the opportunity um, to uh, engage the audience in what they were about to see and put put some uh, perspective to it. Um, You know, you got to keep it short and sweet um, at festivals in between bands, unless you don't unless you got to stretch it out in the old uh, mighty wind stretching out thing you get from yes. the side of the stage. But yes. uh, I just remember making lots of notes and just re- um, just thinking the catchy points or or um, interesting tidbits of uh, background to sort of set up you, you guys and the music. So thanks. And I miss that. I miss that gig. I mean, the pandemic kind of knocked it out of the water, and life goes on. But uh, that was lots of fun. Yes, definitely. Okay, so to set up kind of like my first uh, the opening question, I just like you to um, tell us where are you um, calling or joining from today, and then tell us also where you grew up. Right, I'm joining you from Wakefield, Quebec, where I've been living for the last pile of years, 10, 15 years, I suppose. And I grew up in Kingston, Ontario. On my mother's side, matrilineally, I'm would be fifth generation Kingstonian from Princess Street. Well, there you go. So this really is the Kingston episode, then. <laughs> okay. So, so the so the 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 uh, early question here, first question is uh, the goals. We're trying to go back to uh, what what your life and what things were like when you were. I'm going to say high school era or even earlier, maybe age twelve or thirteen. So we're going back to Kingston, and we like to say that we're in your house or whatever it is you grew up, and it's a Friday or Saturday night. Um, and there's something in the kitchen on the stove or maybe in the oven. And it's very memorable uh, because it smells great or whatever. But tell us what the, what's on the stove that night and why do you remember it so well? <laughs> Jeez, I think I'll probably have to make something up loosely based on family lore because our those years were uh, peculiar. <laughs> Perhaps <laughs> not best for the radio. Um, yeah, well... Um, I don't think I came from that kind of um, happy days kind of world, you know. It was a bit more chaotic and uh, 
running around. My mother had an apron that said, I hate cooking in big block <laughs> letters, but rarely got used because she really lived it up. But no, she made sure we were fed and, and healthy. And, uh, but yeah, um, <laughs> pass. <clears throat> okay. Well, that's funny because if, if it wasn't happy days, that's, that's fun. like, well, that's part of the story. That's part of where we're going. It's to, it's, you get, I don't want to, I don't want you to think that I've got like, it was a, 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 a terrible times, but I guess, uh, it's a long time back to think of, but, um, I just remember being, we were, I mean, I'm pretty, pretty hyper guy, but I just to remember the house and was, was a place to refuel and get rest before we launched out into some wild adventure in the woods. Or once I got to be a teenager and riding our bikes all over Kingston and finding places where we could do our thing, you know, and hang out and locking ourselves in bedrooms and cranking kiss records and, Mott the hoople or whatever, you know, and then as time went by, punk stuff and that. But it was just trying to find that place to discover our identities, you know, like who are we, it, not in relation to our mother and father and brothers and sisters and such. But, uh, you know, I guess that's, that's sort of the teenage years. You're trying to stake out a claim as to what a who am I really or what do I really like and how confident are you in that enough to like say it out loud for fear of ridicule. But also, you want to find your people. So um, I, that's my biggest memories from teen years, is that, and seeing my stepkids and my relatives and friends' kids grow go through that age recently or in the last uh, as life goes by, and remembering it quite clearly, like, oh yeah, that's a tricky bunch of stuff to navigate. And thank gosh for music and and freaky things, you know, stuff to help you expand your mind and discover stuff. I definitely think that, um, you know, for me, I've talked before about the, just like a bike was a big part of, I grew up in Oshawa, Mike and I both did. And, and, you know, being able to, as you said, uh, just, you know, define your own thing. And before getting a chance to get in a car or something like that, a bike was, was your, you know, and, and we would, I would do the same thing, particularly on a Saturday or Sunday, you know, you'd get up in the morning and you were, you were at that door and you'd be pretty much gone all day. Um, and, you know, part of it is, is the sense, uh, you know, kind of like what sense, uh, what sense of adventure you had as a young, as a young person, particularly because, because you did grow up in Kingston, you said, you know, and because I, I you know, went to school there, lived there, I don't know it that well, but it, it really is one of my favorite places. And, and so I, I can in, literally envision you driving your bike around and I can think of some of the places you may have gone. Uh, what what would you say that as it starts to relate to you mentioned Kiss records before, but what kind of musical touchstones can you think of in Kingston that that may have been in and around your again like that the young teenage version of Luther? Yeah, I guess I mean the first time I became aware of people that I knew personally or had heard of or a friend of a friend knew was in a band or playing music, you know, beyond the high school band stuff, which I later learn to really respect and see where like uh, so many great uh, musicians were also in the this high school bands and such. But um, yeah, just, I, I went to LCBI, which was a little more, it was a little rougher um, school, but um, it was in the city, right in the sort of in the, the, what was once the suburbs out by the old shopping center. And then KCBI was the downtown school that my mom went to when she was a kid. It's been there. It's the oldest school in Kingston, I think. And um, 
the KCBI kids, they had bands in school. I remember in grade nine or 10 or something like that, going sneaking into a high school dance over at KC. And there was some bands playing like Finney McConnell and Seppi and these guys that, uh, you know, friends of friends were up there, John Bowen, these dudes were just really rocking and they had, the, they had it going on. I, they definitely were, it seems so far advanced to something that took me about 15 years to reach that kind of level, I suppose, but yeah, it was a, yeah. forever an inspiration just, uh, and then there's bands like Percy and the teardrops, the Lakeview Manor is an old bar with much colored history down in Moat, uh, the bottom of Moat Avenue there in Portsmouth Village where I grew up. So yep, that was a big music club. And uh, the Prince George Hotel and Dollar Bills had like legendary blues bands blowing through there. It was kind of on the trap line of the Chicago blues circuit in the 80s and, um, and 70s and 80s. I did, there was always rumors of stuff flying around. You're always hearing about bands playing. And I guess that whole world just seemed uh, – it, so, it just kind of brought – brought life back home it seemed like it's all possible you know well one thing that uh, jumps to mind as you talk about kcbi is that um so one other conversation i had here was with uh matthias from the burning hell uh, mm -hmm. a band who he, he's lived in a few places but he actually grew up uh his teenage years were in kingston and he had some time at kcbi and and we talked a bit about that and I think of this idea of Kingston today as um, there's there's almost like this 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 um, movement to make Kingston like the, the the true music city of Canada, make it make it like the uh, the you know Austin or something like that of Canada because of the the, the lineage of of all of the bands, the, the big bands and the smaller bands, but uh, you know and the blues. There's all these different things that that have come out of Kingston, but I almost wonder. Uh, so many stories about origin stories in Kingston seem to tie back to KCVI somehow, somewhere. <laughs> you know, shows... All roads lead back to Fenton McConnell from the homes in, in yes. my rock world. Pretty. Yeah, I almost feel like if that ever happens, that Kingston becomes declared the music city of Canada, that there's got to be some special spot for KCVI in there. Hell, hells yeah. I mean, uh, that's the, all the guys in the Tragically Hip went there. and Yeah, so um, I guess in that, that, that direct, like, I feel like I kind of missed out on, um, I mean, I, we got a taste of it, of seeing that that scene was going on. And as high school went on, our, um, our high schools kind of blended, like the parties and events and things kind of blended more. So I made some great friends from other schools that are still close to. And um, just, uh, yeah, it was Kingston's, it's a magical place. You know, it's a medium-sized city with tons of history, and the universities and all that, you know, there's a lot of solid jobs. And then the 20 to 30,000 students and staff and such that come in every fall. I mean, some people stay, but, you know, it's such a huge influx. I mean, they're like almost like a fifth of the population shows up with all their experience and or whatever life experiences and interests and money and such. So it's, it's been able to thrive probably where a lot of medium-sized cities weren't, weren't as fortunate with that in the history, but it, it's just, uh, as you know, from being there, there's a certain laid backness, like, uh, you can still maintain a certain anonymity to, to, yeah. uh, yourself there. I think I, my impression of the tragically hip guys, um, watching them as a fan, um, is, uh, 
they felt comfortable in their hometown. You know, there was a certain Kingston respect that you, you wouldn't go hassle those guys in the bar. You, you know, bug them on the street kind of thing. Maybe they, probably the students didn't follow the same credo, but uh, yeah, it had, yeah. it had, it, it sort of, as I found out later, it, it kind of reminded me of New York city in a way that, that it has that you can, you know, people leave you alone in the streets, except for the tourists, I suppose. But um, there's a coolness, I suppose, to that, that to just, you know, let people be, do your thing, do what you say you're going to do. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, for sure. What, when, let, let's go, you know, just like get into the music side of things. So you're, you're in high school. Uh, what is the first chance that you get to start playing music? And is it on, I'm going to assume on guitar, but what, what, talk about some of the first, your first musical experiences in Kingston. Yeah, I got to say, we can pretty much skip right past high school. For me, I got out as fast as I could. I started school a year early, and I I moved. I didn't go to grade thirteen. I went to St. Lawrence College at grade when I was seventeen. Okay, and then went there for a few years. And during that time, that's when I whatever I became a more in the, into the arts or found my found my path a little more. I got a job at Shea Piggy in 1980 or 81 when it had only been open a couple of years and legendary Zolianovsky and Love and yep. Spoonful yes. and the whole crew that he, of people around that uh, place and Zol's, you know, as a musician, like his, his, the uh, music collection and uh, the constant uh, background of the music and all that stuff at that place was my university in music. Like I discovered everything, you know, Pretty much. And Zoll was always open to talk about it, too. We could ask him about Michael Bloomfield or what was what was Jimi Hendrix like, you know, all the questions you would ask. That's and cool. um, Yeah, so it was cool. And then all the other staff, like it was my, my local hoser boy introduction to, um, um, you know, the late, this is the early 80s, which in Kingston is still a 70s. I think the 70s might have lasted until like 84 in Kingston. <laughs> but there was, <laughs> yeah, a, yeah. you know, a lot of the like soup, like the explosion of liberal thinking and, and, and op- openness and um, acceptance and curiosity. Um, it was just the best place to be it's for 17, 18. They really did change me and steer me kind of into the path that I ended up taking went into the arts and music. And, and that's around the time that I picked up the guitar. I think it was only, I was 20 when I started to play guitar before that okay. I didn't play, played harmonica and things, but yeah, I picked up the guitar and just, um, yeah, I pretty immediately started writing songs like right away, like, okay, songs, how's this right? But for some reason I started writing country songs and at the time I kind of hated country and I never really liked it and never really came to engage or love it until my late twenties. When we started the wrongs, I just had cataloged so many of these songs I'd written, but I wasn't really into it. But eventually Cam Giroux, the weeping tell drummer from Charlotte Lake and Sean Kelly and my brother, George, we sort of steered our way into that world, but I felt, yeah, it was, uh, I just feel like I just stumbled onto my path there. I'm glad I got that job as a dishwasher. So get jobs as a dishwasher. Anybody out there? Dishwash. That's uh, the second uh, uh, appraisal of dishwashing, actually. And it was also the first one was, again, it was Matthias from Burning Hill. He, he said that uh, for his time in Peterborough, that he was the best dishwasher in all of Peterborough. So so there you go. I mean, I I, I also think of um, the, that that is an interesting history, you're right, with, 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 uh, was Zal and Zal and uh, and she Piggy. I think of um, the the toucan as being this you know important. Uh, oh yeah, such an important spot because it's like it's such a tiny place. But you know there was particularly the the time when I was there there was there was such a uh, commitment to music that uh, Ian had over there and 
you know, I can still remember the day that I, I you know, had a, our very first cassette and I remember riding my bike down and I sort of kept trying to get, to get one to him. And finally, uh, I think it was because we were involved in a battle of the bands at Queens that he finally sort of listened to the cassette and we were able to get some, you know, our very first kind of opening type gigs at the Toucan. But uh-huh. that was some epic, epic shows there, uh, in, including some of the ones that we did, uh, you know, with, with yourself and with Weeping Tile and all kinds of things over the years, those Christmas shows that we did, the PF Records Christmas shows. You oh, know, yeah. Um, but, but it's, um, but it's good though. So like in this, so in this, uh, the way I try to do these conversations is to break it into four parts. So we've done a bit of a, a, a lead up to, you know, um, you s- starting to record. And so we're going to, we're going to play it. We're going to play your, your old, your sort of uh, vintage track here, which is the original version of Luther's Luther got the blues. And, um, it is on your album hurting for certain. We'll talk about it after. Uh, but, uh, just to, you know, go back here. It is hurting okay. for certain. I hate the city, it brings me down I'm a country boy, I'm new to town I never really thought it was gonna be like that I've spent all my money, I'm busted flat And I'm eating my dinners at the Sally Ann Met a fella named Charlie there, a fella named Dan they laugh at my clothes and the way that I talk. 8 a.m. comes, I hit the streets and walk, walk. The bus stops, the donut shops. It's raining out today like it's never gonna stop. And I've got the blues. Nothing left to lose I got a hole in my shoe My foot's getting wet Nick at the arcade, he's made me a bet that come Saturday noon when my money's all gone. I'll be heading out of town like another hard luck sad song. And all the faces on the streets got a look of fear. I can't go home, but I hate it here. Why'd I ever go and leave the farm anyway? I thought the city might help me take my blues away. But the cars go by. Tonight I'll stay dry, sleeping underneath an awning and trying not to cry. Luther's got the blues. Nothing left to lose. 
the concrete beneath my feet has got inside my soul and it's sucking out the heat thanks for listening okay so that was the that was the original four track version of uh Luther got the blues and uh which was later re-recorded uh, by Sarah Harmer but I'm going to let I'm going to let you tell that story so Luther, over to you. Hi there. <laughs> yeah, the four track, and I only used the one track on that four track, if I remember correctly. Wow. But um, yeah, it was just an early demo. Um, there, um, I think I, I'm not sure where I picked it up or we picked it up, but I sort of had this, always had this fascination of uh, of finding like the almost the original version, like literally like the songwriter kind of notebook version of a song and it being so profound and perfect that you try and as you may and spend as much money as you have or can get to reproduce that magic in a highly in, in full product sonic production that would match the other songs that you're putting on your record and then you just can't so you just put that on the on the album as the last song and I don't know where I, who's done that before. I've, I just I knew I got it, we got it from somewhere, but it kind of became a thing that we learned. Uh, just to go fast track down the road a little bit, when Weeping Tao was making this second record, Valentino, we were really working on all the tunes. We did some great demos and such, but uh, on, like on the at studios and things. But then Sarah had this one song, Old Perfume, that our friend Julie Fader had found on a, yes. on a four track when I was trying to sh- play her or something from our other band, we, I just pressed play and she's like, what is that? And I'm like, I have no idea. And it was the old perfume song on cassette. Anyway, we, same kind of thing happened. We just couldn't find it. We couldn't reproduce it to its satisfaction. It ended up being the last song on that record. So the, I, with the wrongs, when we made our first record, we went to Grand Avenue where Weeping Tile had recorded and I'd made fast friends with the engineer, Robin Obey and, we negotiated a deal to get two days on the weekend because we can tell was in doing so much, you know, spending some money there, making our record that they cut us a deal for the wrongs. And we had all our stuff set up. So Sean and Cam and I busted in there and did the whole album without the, some of the overdubs, but we brought in some folks and this fellow, John Allen, who's passed on from Prairie Oyster and Kim Deschamp, the pedal player, steel guitar player guy who was in blue rodeo at the time and anyway we did the whole thing like two days old school and um we did a version of luther's got the blues various ways tried live off the floor tried this and that and at the end of the day we uh, dug up the old cassette and uh that's what made it on the record because it just sort of i i well now when i listen to it it sounds cute and it sounds like a, a, a squir- you know some squirrely dude in a motel room singing it but uh it does have the charm I guess in, there's the story behind Bruce Springsteen's uh, Nebraska record that he went on the road and wrote all his tunes, on, recording on an old four track, and got back to the studio with the guys wherever in Jersey, and they started pouring the money in. And Bruce, they worked on everything, and on they just kept uh, plugging away on the songs and bringing people in and trying again. And, and Bruce kept pulling this cassette out of the pocket, his pocket, and putting it on, saying, "Like, come, let's just listen to this." And now that's what we're going for. And they'd try it back, and then finally the engineer said, "Hey, give me that cassette." And he just took it and cleaned it all up. And that's the album that you buy at the store these days. So, 
I um, think there's a, a lot to be said for, for charm. You know, it's, uh, you know, I de- we definitely had some similar experiences in terms of being able to have tracks that were done on four track and you just either, you just can't recreate it or you can't recreate this, whatever that specific vibe is. And one thing about the nineties was what, what, you know, there was also this element of, that's a great story about Nebraska, but you know, there's, there's also this, this element of way like for the four, the idea of putting a four track on a record was something that was, yeah. you know, whether it was Sebado or, or Eric's trip, or, you know, there, there was these, you know, examples of people just, it, you know, it wasn't, um, it wasn't as unheard of, I guess. And it kind of became, you know, like the term lo-fi and all that kind of stuff, but it, it really is about the charm and the feeling of the track for sure. Yeah. And, and, um, I mean, one more story off similar topic, but I think that's the story behind the violent femmes record is that was their demos. I don't know if they did on four track, but they de- demoed them. And then they went and they had, uh, they just, every, I don't know if they played a conference or something, but they got four or five le- offers from different various big labels and the one they took was the whoever said you will just release this, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And when you listen to that record, you can tell it's got some some funky bass. I mean, you can always you know, uh, you can hear the sounds, but it just it's awesome. Yeah, there's it's hard to. Um, I think these days with digital stuff and that home recording, and also just the twenty thousand hours we probably all put into it. That yeah, um, you work. You can work. It's a lot easier. Like it's a lot. If we had this kind of freedom back in the day when I really needed 25 takes to do a, a, a one sentence vocal part, <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. like we would be punching on analog tape in and out and cam would be like, you're just a little flat at the end, you know, um, it's funny. It's kind of backwards because we could have used now I, we as bands and kind of pull stuff off with less, less takes and analog would make more sense and be easy enough to use. But uh, so we were kind of working double hard to get something that stands the test of time and listening to all those great records from the nineties, like the ones like, you know, national albums and also all the great stuff that that came out of Kingston. I mean, so much of that stuff stands the test of time. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It, It, um, the, the idea of recording in studios makes me want to uh, uh, sort of move to the the next part of the conversation. I, I call it music becoming real. And it's getting at the idea where you're doing things for fun or maybe you're not necessarily thinking that music could be something you do for your life or for a period of your life, but music becomes real. And what, what I think of when I think of Kingston, and I'm really interested in your observations around the Funhouse studio. So uh, music became real uh, in a bunch of different ways for me, but one of them was probably the first time that we had a, uh, you know, like a, a, a proper studio experience. And I, I, I think like for us, it, if Funhouse wasn't the first, it was either the first or second. And we, uh, we had, I think somehow we may have one studio time for, to do two tracks. This is vaguely how I remember, but so Grand FA from 13 Engines had a, had this uh, amazing studio out in an industrial area. And it was one of the first chances that we went out and we're recording um, a couple songs that we're going to put on a seven inch with uh, the band, the Shermans. Uh, just the whole experience. If you've never, of course, if you've played music, but you've never recorded music, it's really can be two entirely different things. And then everything from what you're actually playing to all the, I think of the whole vibe in that studio, um, you know, Grant is a very energetic guy and there's all these kind of characters coming and going and just getting used to, uh, things like, you know, playing with headphones on and, and, uh, and it, 
you know, playback and how, how loud are you playing or not, you know, staying in time, all these things that come out. But music became real for sure when we had our first chance at Funhouse Studios. What, what, what are some of your uh, thoughts on, on the Funhouse? <laughs> well, just as a side note, I, st- I still have that uh, PF Records 7-inch uh, with the Shermans and the Inbreds. Spot That's on right, shirt. Right. It's awesome. Um, so the Funhouse was a – it was a – culmination of a dream that a couple of dudes, um, Grand Eche from 13 Engines, as you mentioned, and a fellow named Neil Fraser. And we were all living in Toronto at the time. Grant and I lived right across the alleyway on Huron Street for a bit. And uh, Big Neil, as we called him, because he's about six foot seven, he played for St. FX. He almost got drafted for the Argos, but you know, left after tryouts and became a film tech where we met back in the day. And he and Grant kind of made, were buddies and they really hit it off. Um, and uh, we were, as we did all the years I lived in Toronto, we were always coming back to Kingston to whoop it up. And it was such a fun scene. And Neil uh, started to get into the Kingston scene. And um, around the time of the original big venturi parties, when they used to just be at a farm and, um, and Grant, and Neil came up with an idea. They'd heard the old, the Alcan factory in Kingston had closed, which after many generations of employing many Kingstonians, they, in, uh, in, after NAFTA, they shipped their uh, plant somewhere south and cheaper. And they didn't have to pay people. And um, anyway, Grant and Neil found an old office in the way in the back of the Alcan factory, just up some flight of stairs. It was probably used for a certain like office thing and they uh they renovated it up and put in some living stuff in the in the downstairs on the main floor and then upstairs as you were there like the studio room was uh, all built up so it was exciting at first they bought all the gear and we threw a big party out in the bathroom my brother and i and my sister-in-law out of the house and they brought all their stuff that was going to the fun house next week so we did a big mugwort's rock show with me and my brother's band and then ne- next week they moved into the fun house and started cobbling together gear and uh, I think they started with a eight track, uh, eight track half inch, maybe Might, okay, they, moved yeah. up to, they moved up to 16 track one inch when they were done. Uh, plus people brought in stuff, but yeah, Grant just started cobbling together gear. He and Neil um, and he would go up to tech. It was called uh, Teletech North of Toronto and they made friends with the guys and they were just buying whatever they could. And Grant, would make, you know, get a band in there and he'd be working on headphone mixes and he'd be using like VCRs and, and the output of an old television that the <laughs> tubes broken and bubble gum and toothpicks. And uh, he was just so keen. And, but he also his, he was just so into music. Like his, his, uh, his tastes were great. It's phenomenal. Like he's the kind of guy who still to this day, I'm sure is spinning some kooky nanomuscary vinyl or something, you know, or fun, fun fact to throw in is that, is that Grant was the um, DJ at my wedding. There you go. Yeah. yeah. I think he's a DJ queen king there. Um, <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah. So that, that's um yeah, I think I was just right there from the fir- from the very first uh, the beginnings uh, right through to the end of the Funhouse era there as a as a hanger on and then in the various music projects that uh, I've been involved in. So it was great to watch. They um, a fellow named Chris Bottomley, who's um, you know Brain Fudge, he and John yep. Bottomley brothers from Toronto, John yep. R.I.P. Um, Chris was a good friend of Big Neil's, and he came up with Neil a bunch of times. And uh, I remember he brought up a young Howie Beck, who was uh, like 
to play drums. And he was like 18 or something. And then in between the drum, the, the work on Chris's record, how he just started to play some of his own songs. And it was obvious that he was going places. But anyway, Chris brought up the sort of professionalism, I think, and was kind of, t- you know, they were working together. And Grant had lots of experience. I mean, 13 Engines recorded with, like they recorded on Neil Young's Ranch with with uh, the famous producer fellow there. Uh, Dave Briggs. David Briggs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Grant had the great stories. He had great David Briggs stories. He had stories of opening up for, I don't know, Nirvana or whatever, huge bands or, or Perry Farrell's band and stuff like that. So he would always, you know, as you know, he keep, he just kept the, kept the atmosphere festive and fun. Yes. And, uh, you know, we're big potheads. So we're just like smoking weed and uh, using crappy mics to make amazing music. And, um, it was just the greatest time. I, I, so many bands came through there and so many people met. I think Finney McConnell found, uh, had met Sarah Harmer when she just met at Queens. And maybe this is a story for her or someone else to say, but I think he organized a jam that was kind of legendary and bringing together a whole bunch of musicians that met for the first time, Joe Chitlin and various folks and Morosepi. And then, um, yeah, there's just lots of those uh, times where one band would be coming out from recording for two days and another band to be loading in. And that's probably how we met. And, you know, next thing you know, like, Hey, we're doing a show with the group of, or you guys want to do this thing. And, you know, it just seemed like every, you turn every corner in Kingston or, um, and run into another band person or wave at someone on a bike. And it's buddy from the inbreds. So, yeah. That's d- definitely true. Now, can you think like when we think of that studio, just the, just to, you know, put a, put a cap on it is w- what are some of the major releases that came out of that time? Like, for example, do you have some records uh, that are specifically Funhouse records? The Weeping Tile Valentino record is specifically, we, I remember we sweet talked to the label Warner to uh, just give us the money. I'm like, like this is our second record. We already proved like the first album made at Grand Avenue prior and then signed the deal. So we, didn't need anyone looking over our shoulder and we like sort of proved that with the first album so that they, um, I think our manager Patrick was uh, able to convince them just to kind of write us a, a check that we could just make a budget out of it. And we wanted to do it at the fun house because we love the room and we live in Kingston. You know, we, we just spent like them living, moving to another town. Maybe that was fun. We've done that. We've done that, but we live in Kingston. And uh, so we, and then we rented a Studer 24 track, and I remember I had to get a crane and remember the day Trevor Henderson from the Hellbillies came out with a sawzall to cut the, cut the balcony so that the crane could lift the machine and slide it in the door. And the, the insurance guys we hired or whatever, that they were like, listen, when that thing's in the air until it gets in the studio, it's not insured. So <laughs> wow. we got 20 seconds of uninsured, like whatever, half million dollar gear or whatever the things cost. Anyway, we rolled that in and we hired a fellow named Mark Haynes who we'd met on our first album mixing from Madison, Wisconsin, who was a really great guy, Ted Nugent's cousin, although that didn't have anything to do with the project, but we found that out. <laughs> um, anyway, he came up and uh, engineered and helped us to make uh, Valentino. And we did the whole thing there. Um, yeah. So it, that, that's what, and I love that, the sound of that record. I mean, it's a big, bold sounding fun record. And uh, that was our, fun, that was the pinnacle of the fun house. But um I, both, I mean, I, pretty much everything we did up to that point, we did both our Mugwort's records there. The second one, um, when I just sort of got remastered, um, is so crazy guitar heavy. And I remember Grant and I and my brother just like trying out like crazy amps, driving up to 
Parham to borrow Buddy's old Marshall head that the whole one yeah. side works, but just turn it up to eight. And, you know, just like get, really getting into the sonics. And Grant, Grant would be putting mics in the basement and locking, you know, closing doors and putting mics on them and running the cables up and just getting these crazy ass sounds. I got to say, we were pretty obsessed with Dinosaur Jr. and Pixies, yeah. Frank Black stuff. Um, you know, and also getting into the ministry and just wall of sounds thing. So, um, Grant's the experimental years and the, like the willingness to just go, cause we didn't really have a budget. Like he kind of didn't really tell you what you were going to pay. He sort of felt bad about it, but he had to make some money, you know, it was uh, pretty priceless. You know, when you mention uh, guitars and dinosaur junior, that makes me think of another, I'm pretty sure a product of the Funhouse, which was of course my, uh, old high school friend, Derek Chambers and, the uh, Low Sea Monsters cassette. And what I remember oh, about yeah. that is I'm pretty sure that was a Funhouse product. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it blew me away when I heard it for two reasons. One was the guitars were, you know, probably m- major amps, double, triple track, and all that kind of stuff. But I, I recall that one thing that Grant was able to do was convince Derek to double track his vocals. And it made right. such a huge difference on this recorded product that they, yeah. this was a cassette at that time. But I definitely remember that also being another, another uh, Grant, uh, you know, creation so but yeah he spent a lot of time in studios as one does over the years mixing where you read all those mixing magazines you know you see them in studios but he actually read them all and make notes so he's constantly like i read this thing i want to try it out i would definitely say that 13, 13 engines are one of those bands that um uh you know or if you if you don't know their music you, it's worth uh investigating because in some ways i th- when i think of i think of uh the video they had these videos and grant was particularly an interesting character in all their videos and when you're talking about the recording i can just literally see that this this uh the kind of face that he would make when you're on the other side of the glass like i almost like 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 he just you know almost like sucking on an orange or something like he had these really big expressive faces like you might call them drummer faces or guitar face or whatever but he had some like as you're as you're talking i can just remember them um but but as it relates to, uh, you know, you mentioned the second Weeping Tower record. I mean, part of the reason I'm doing this podcast is because my my memory can be a bit fuzzy. So my memory of Weeping Tile as it relates to the inbreds is that I think we, we came, we re- almost literally came up at the same time in the sense that we were just starting to do, um, you know, cassette recordings. And then we were, then we had a chance to do a CD and we got a, we were able to get, you know, tour up and down the Ontario circuit and all this kind of stuff. But when it got to the point where we were lucky enough to get label interest, I believe it was almost the exact same time that that happened for Weeping Tile. And we ended up getting American label interest, which I believe you did as well. Um, What are your memories about the time when which you actually got Weeping Tile got a record deal? And was that American? And or was it even connected to the label that we were associated with, which was Atlantic Tag? I can't remember. Tag Seed, man, we were on the same level. Okay, so we were on the same level. There you go. Yeah, with Rusty. They were the other Canadian band. Oh, that's yeah. right. Seed. Seed, yes. I remember Tag that. Seed. Guy named Mark. I, maybe the band Ivy was on there as well. Yeah. Is that right? And yeah. Fella, I, can't remember, I can't remember his name. Mark was the – he started the label. And, uh, yeah. But, but that's funny. But we never – I don't – but did we ever cross paths in New York, for example? Did we, did we I, ever – you know, because no. we, we, they, we, they had us down there for different things. And I don't remember, but I feel like it was the same time, but yet we were kind of on we, parallel tracks, but yet slightly separate for some reason. I'm not really sure why. Yeah. I, no, we never crossed paths in, uh, in that world. I remember, I just remember being in their offices and seeing Combinator. And uh, I think the hips 
album was it day for night maybe or um yeah that, i think that was atlantic you're right I think, yeah yeah they, i think they were on tag as well i think because we at one point we had there was this woman jennifer who was our a and r woman and she was also doing a and r for the tragically hip ironically and kingston but um yeah that whole world was changing so fast i remember um um, well, I guess with Weeping Tile, I should mention when I was saying second album, that second full-length album was Valentino because there's an, the EP is the legendary first uh, Weeping Tile record. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, so um, how did it work? I think, I guess we got signed for Cold Snap. So Cold Snap got a deal with Warner. I mean, at the time, it was confusing. I mean, it, it just, it's... Um, Looking back, I mean, record deals in the 90s, would, there's an, I guess, a little background on my impression of how the music industry would work, worked and then changed. And I don't know how it works now, but I know that there's a thing in the back in the day, they say, that uh, labels had the clout and the resources to basically sign X number of bands, let's say 100 bands, and they needed one or maybe three of them to become a really big band and the rest they could nurture and invest into maybe because maybe it'll be the second or third record and then that'll be the one so they it was like a you know they fertilize a whole community or like a whole bunch of bands in a giant field and then and, and make it with the two or three that really made it but i guess with the changing world in the 90s and such that just didn't become in the diy world and, and digital music and napster and all that stuff it just labels stopped doing that as much like i guess they always say like some of the our favorite artists from the 70s would probably not be able to pull it off nowadays because there wouldn't be that kind of patience or such you know so um we i felt like we were at the right you know at the right place at the wrong time or something like that yeah. <laughs> musically we were in the right place but we were sort of torn between our indie status and we just felt like well you know the reels aren't on a label and we love them and you know like our What's the label? We didn't understand what labels did and what they were going to do for us and what it meant. We were just more worried about our cred or whatever. Or just, or actually, we're pretty anti-capitalist, you know, people. Yeah, like we just yeah. didn't want, we didn't want to fucking deal with men. And I, I guess you know the part of the thing is, I hate to say stuff like this, but there's a certain element in the arts where, with the more successful you are, part of your job becomes spending time in situations with people that you probably would never talk to about stuff that you are totally not interested in, but it's, you make nice because it's business and that's part of the business. And I mean, every job has that. I guess when you think of musicians and artists, you're like, well, they probably never helped it sooner or all the guy as dull as Marty over here or whatever, you know, but I felt like that at the time without any experience or anyone really coaxing us through it, it just was a strange kind of world experience, you know, going to boardrooms and talking about, your creative, your creativity, and how is that gonna, how's that gonna be marketable, and what's the best angle on it? Like those kind of things are, you know, it's a heady. I feel, but you know what that makes me think of a really funny story is going down to New York, and uh, the record had, uh, you know, it just come out, and the early days, of course, everyone's in a, you know, everyone's putting on their best, as you said, and you literally find yourself in these board meetings and stuff like that. But I can remember one of the first times going to the, the offices of Tag Atlantic or whatever. And we walk in the door and um, they go, uh, you know, we're going to introduce us to like, let's say like seven offices. So there's somebody that's marketing and whatever. And you'd walk into the first office and, and it would be John and they'd say, 
Hey, hey, John, you know, the, the inbreds are here. And he'd go, oh, hey, how you doing? And like, and literally, so like the combinator's playing in his office, coincidentally. And it's like, yeah. oh, oh, yeah, okay. That's kind of interesting, you know. So then you go to the next office and you meet you meet Larry, you know. And, and yeah. coincidentally, combinator's playing as well. But it's, it's, it's as if it's at the exact same point as the first office. And then, uh, then the, so it's, it's like as if the, somebody put a... a they're here, you know. Everyone, everyone has to throw on Combinator at the same time. So as you went through, it was hilarious. It was almost as if, as you met each office, you could see <laughs> the album would progress as if it started all in the same time. But that was, that was just, you know, you, you know, it sort of sets off your thing. Like I don't know if that's, uh, you know, that seems a little bit uh, corny. And and specifically, there was this. I think you were alluding to it. This version of uh, humility. It's very hard to explain to people about nine, playing in a band in the '90s. You just, you not only did you have to be all those things you said about. Um, being genuine and not corporate, but it was a version of humility where you just, you would never, like an example would be, you would never do a, a license your music for a commercial, a car commercial or even beer commercial. That was really uh, a no, no, you know, or the, there was the, yeah. uh, there was the cigarette bus that was, would some bands were, you know, they, they pay for your entire tour bus sponsored by Rothman. Oh, export. export. <laughs> Yeah, so there was all, there was a version of humility that was very uniquely '90s, and I think it's just notable. I think too because because we have this weeping tile and, and inbreds parallel timing was also this element of the you call it like the post grunge thing where there was a you know um, you know certain type of music uh, Canadian music kind of I think in the latter half of the '90s a lot of bands broke up and fell apart and different things happened and the the landscape really changed you know. Um, and I, I think it's, that's been explored in a bunch of different ways, but I think our, it's interesting that our timing was just so, so similar. Um, and then of course, you know, coming out of weeping tile, you, Syria does her thing, you're doing your thing and all kinds of other things, but it's, um, you know, very unique, unique. And also that we were both from Kingston and all that kind of coming up at the same time. Uh, you know, do, do you have, do you have good memories of, some of the opportunities maybe, cause we had a bunch of all kinds of different weird opportunities that came out of being on a label, but do you can remember some good things that came out of it? Oh, I mean, it's all good things. <clears throat> and um, just a caveat, like I'm, I'm just one of, one of four members in, in Weeping Tile, you know, the well, five members really with um, switch over from sister Mary on base to sticky, but it was, um, you know, Sarah's, Sarah's running the show. She's our band leader, but um, yeah, my experience is, I think it was all good. Like we were, we had a, we were having a lot of fun. I mean, um, the opportunities are great. I, I mean, and all those people you talk about, like uh, Larry and marketing and, and Jennifer at, uh, in publicity and all those things, we, um, in various versions after like, um, in all the different labels I work with and people I work with almost to a person, everybody is so sincerely into music and what they're doing. And if you're on, if they get you in there, you know, they get a file and like, here's the new releases. Here's a new band we signed. It's like, they think about you, you know, they're thinking about, it, they're working it. And in a way that we as independent artists and before and after and currently like got to do all that yourself, you know, you got to really think of it. And it's, it's hard to compartmentalize. So to have a team of folks, regardless of, even if you didn't have that much in common, like Mike likes golfing and he, but luckily, yeah. remember, but, you know, stuff like one can like golfing. So he'd go golfing, but just like playing nice with folks that are, you know, not really on our scene, but at the end of the day, people, 
you know, I believe people are just good people and they're working hard, you know, like the decisions being made, the creative decisions. I mean, that's, that was the trickiest part to navigate because part it's partly the manager's, it's the manager's job, but the manager's trying, trying to interpret what, you know, what's going to work for us and what we will agree to and what we'll be good at. And like you said, an ever shifting world and you're just trying to hit your mark. But I guess to make a long story boring, but the, like fun being able to go, just have the have the in to tour. We wanted to play live, so as soon as we got a deal with, um, well, even before that, but definitely once we got our first deal with Cold Snap, we immediately got the chance to open for a bunch of bands like the Skydiggers, particularly lovely with us, and Blue Rodeo took us on a giant twenty eight um, date North American tour that was all through the states and uh, just. Um, we had nothing, our music didn't really fit with them, but they were good about it and their fans were indifferent, but we get to go to 28 different American cities or whatever it was at the time. And then we did op this opening, opening, opening. And then we, when we finally got our first show, at, a gig at the horseshoe after about a year and a half of, of opening for everybody we could, it was, we were ready and it was perfect. And it, and I think that had a lot to do with being able to pop, pop up, um, a little out of the crowd and be plucked to be out there spending someone else's money. I mean, we weren't getting any in our pockets, but it was paying for things. So hotels and we could subsist, but we could play shows every night and plan shows every night or five nights a week for a year and a half. Really? That's, I mean, it's all we dreamed about and we were good at it. And we want, you know, we got better at it. So it, it, it just made that all possible. So whatever the, the faults and the, the of the, the industry. I mean, uh, it just came down to the same kind of hard work that the musicians and the people around here are putting in. And one just last thing about the time with Tag Seed, the label that we shared with the inbreds and Rusty. I remember talking to the lead singer of Rusty and him saying, did you guys, have you been back? And we we're like, no, we're going back this week. And he goes, well, it's changed. Like they sent us out on tour in a bus in the States because they had that big hit. And he said, when they came back to New York, they went in and they're like, where's Mike? Where's Chris? And they yeah. been, uh, they the label had been absorbed by Atlantic, and we the same thing happened to us. We went back to New York City to do a show, probably with Chris Brown and Kate Fenner, because they were doing stuff down at CBGB's this night gallery. And uh, we went by. They said, "Oh, come by the label." And we go in, and literally, the only person left that we knew was our A and R woman, which is the best person to have. They they kept, but it had gotten real corporate. And the guy who literally started the label, the seed guy, Mark, he'd been bought out or whatever and um we knew the writing was on the wall kind of then like it just seemed like we hadn't you know we probably hadn't poked through as much as they want so we enjoyed our last italian meal with the label at some fancy new york restaurant and figured <laughs> we're probably on our own in america after this yeah very similar story for us because i can remember being i feel like we might have been in seattle on tour and the uh, getting a phone call in the morning from our champion layla and she was very upset. She had just been let go. And uh, I just remember just basically putting two and two together and going, Oh boy. You know? <laughs> and then so things it's like, that's the way that's the very common story, but when it changes, it changes quick. And I think that it, it you know, that, uh, we still did a lot of stuff after that. We, we were lucky enough to get another record uh, paid for, which was Sydney of the Bush, our third record, but it, the actual um, machine that was behind combinator, uh, had gone away like you know an, ex an example of the machine in our case uh, was that they would say things like you're gonna play the super bowl party in i want to say 
maybe in Texas or something. So they, we literally would out of the existing tour we were on, they would, they flew us down for one show in one market. And it was because any sense of time was being played on the equivalent of, uh, of, you know, a modern rock station. And we were on this bill with all of the people of the day, like sugar Ray or whatever. I don't know all these things, but I remember we played the show and there's just a whole bunch of people drinking beer in this big field before the Super Bowl uh, event. And we're playing and they're just paying no attention to us uh, playing the usual set. And then all of a sudden we, we kick in any sense of time. And it was just, it was like night and day. All of a sudden everyone turns around, looks up at the stage because they recognize Mike's voice and they kind of hear, they obviously have heard this song. I'm assuming many times on the radio and they just had this puzzled look on their face. Like you're that band, you know, <laughs> anyway, it was, it was hilarious. You know, uh, just one song, one time, one spot, one market. Um, but that was very memorable. The funny, the funny stories of uh, coming mm-hmm. up. But anyway, so let's let's um let's go to the the sort of final uh, section here. I call it f- uh, fast forward, and what we're doing is just skipping by all of the amazing things that uh, you know you've done uh, coming out of the nineties, the zeros, the tens, and we're to today. And you know you're living, uh, living, working, doing music, and you know one of the things that where we after all the things that, that I, you know, I did kind of got out of music, started junior, you know, we had connected through that a bit. Uh, but when I started doing these music festivals, we were, you, you know, you, you were, uh, we were lucky enough to get you out to play um, at County Pop. I don't know if that was our second year. Oh yeah, that was great. And that was a, that was a great show, you know, and that's, that's the, I feel like there's a Luther connection uh, in Prince Edward County, which is where I'm coming from yeah. right now. And I don't, I don't, I don't even know the backstory, but there's a bunch of our friends here really love your band and your music. What would you, what is, you know, flashing forward to today, what to talk a bit about music and what you're doing and, and maybe even the County connection, if there is one. Well, my County connection is we had a little family cottage just on, by the Glenora ferry on the other side, which I um, lived at on and off until about 2010. I mean, we kind of was back and forth, but um so I had, yeah, kind of connections in the county, all watching it go from the very backwater county to, um, you know, the explosion of the last 20 years or so, the vineyards. Um, so that was my sort of connection to physical there. But And also it's on the trap line for our, the, the band uh, Luther Right and the Wrongs. Um, yeah, currently, well, the band that played at the county pop is the current lineup still. With, uh, that was uh, Kelsey McNulty on keyboards, who's in all kinds of great bands. Carlo, the, box, um, the uh, Boxcar Boys, and she plays in Great Lake Swimmers. And her partner, JT, who's been playing bass with the wrongs since for 19 years now. And Tara Dumphy from the Risdales was there on fiddle. And Cam Giroux on drums. And Cam, who's the original drummer from Weeping Town, or, or I should say Luther Right and the Wrongs and the um, back from Weeping Tile days and such. Um, he alternates with Casey Fisher, who's also a, a great drummer. He's the sort of the, the two who's available kind of guys. But we've been playing in that, specifically that lineup since not long before that festival. So we played we played a few times during the pandemic. We kind of played only a few times a year. It's a bit of a logistical thing to put together, and it's a big show, like, we charge lots of money and we want to play to lots of people. <laughs> so 
It's, yeah, uh, yeah. I, you know, just getting in the car and saying yes to every gig. I, I kind of, I, I don't know, but a lot of, I, I became a singer songwriter out of just sheer need um, sometime in the early 2000s when, when just playing with the band was just not possible to play as much with money wise. And so, I kind of reluctantly got it, got good at it, I think, you know, like my Towns Van Zant stuff or my Billy Bragg shtick. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I really just love playing with a band. Like I love being in front of a band and having that ability to go from like barely, like almost dead silent to roaring, rattle the windows. And just, it's a big palette to choose from. And um, with all the bands I've been in, like, um, played in like Weeping Tile was a big vocal band. We loved harmonies and singing and uh, the wrongs as well. Like a lot of different, you know, all kinds of vocal stuff and fun singing. And some, especially when we did our Rebuild the Wall record, which is, I think I only sing, I sing just over half the songs on lead and their other half songs are split up from the boys. So we just had that powerhouse. And currently with the wrongs with Tara is a great songwriter and, you know, she'll do a few tunes. Kelsey and James have some, James have some stuff. So, um, that's my big interest and basically only interest in playing live for the most part. I'll do the odd one off in a variation or with some of the other wrongs, the Burke Carol and steel guitar, pedal steel dobro, or, you know, Megan Palmer's our fiddler from Nashville. Who's down there. If she's around, but for the most part, it's just that, uh, that version of the wrongs kicking, um, been working on more music culture stuff. Like we got a grant, my friends, um, up here in Wakefield, we got some money from Heritage Canada during the pandemic to kind of get out the door to artists. So we had a project called Wakefield Does Wakefield, where uh, local songwriters cover each other. So we kind of enhanced that and we made an album. We're just finishing up a film element to it, like music videos and lots of local flavor and local people. So it's kind of a community building machine that I'm... uh, just we're just putting the finishing touches on the film part of it. We had a big release show for the album last year. I'm gonna have a thing, but the beyond the project itself, it's the template of the project, which um, my goal is to spread across Canada and the world, where every small community or any community that with a musical, with any a bunch of songwriters is covering each other's music. So um, our process worked really well. I mean, we were able to stretch the Heritage Canada grant into. Really, uh, you know, in spreading it around to about 26 different people, paid everybody their rates, just super time efficient with it. So that's been a that's been a big um, a big project for the last few years. But it's uh, it's got legs. My I had thought of it many years ago, and as in Kingston does Kingston, but I just yeah never felt I had the juice, and it wasn't the right time. And but this has been a great thing in Wakefield, my second hometown. Now um, I think once we get this done, I'd be ready. I've already kind of peaked the air of Mark Garnis from KPP and the, the Kingston Film Fest folks. And I'm sure I'll, I'll be pulling on Greg Tilson and the Skeleton Park folks' uh, coattails to see. But, it, it, I mean, there's a lot of possibilities in Kingston in so many ways. But it, the big thing is it introduces musicians to each other and the community to the people right in front of them in a way that is around um, around music, you know. So I'm just thinking about ways to, to – uh, to do something about this lack of a real tangible Canadian identity, you know, like a French Canadian yeah. identity exists, but a can like an English Canadian identity that the, I mean, the biggest thing in Canadian identity history are I am Canadian, the Molson Canadian commercial that was designed by come up with some guy from Arkansas. <laughs> and then the tragically hips finest tour and Gord Downey gracefully going out across the country 
like that that didn't do more for Canadian identity than anything I can think of, you know, beyond hockey and beer and saying A and, you know, that kind of stuff. So um, I think about that kind of stuff, like what does define us in this fast moving world where it could slip away at any moment, um, art and culture, music, the things that we have a personal choice about and it's all our personal choice like no one can question i don't like it or i like it i mean at a certain point it's like well i don't like it okay you like it like it's a it's one thing that it's the one truth in our lives i think it's like the guiding the guiding principle is of of our in the, uh, of our identity is steered by our confidence in that we can choose what we like or don't like when it comes to music and art because it doesn't really, if you choose what you don't and do like about public policy, your neighbor might get all up in your face because it's like, well, I don't like lawnmowers on the weekends or whatever. But when it comes to art, if you you know, other than your music's too loud, it's like my tastes are my tastes and your tastes are yours. So I'm just really excited and and um, trying to fight fight against the push towards the middle. You know, mediocrity has never been so good looking. <laughs> And those those are some inspiring words for sure. I mean, I, what it makes me think of also is the idea of, of uh, you know, maybe a 90s thing where the idea of putting Canadian stories, words, uh, characters into your songs was something that was, you know, some considered revolutionary, whether it was the Rio Statics or whether it was Tragically Hip or others, um, you know, putting Canadian stories in. It's actually, honestly, one of the reasons that I, I like, I've really gotten into, again, podcast of all types in the last bunch of years. And part of the reason I'm doing this is, is this idea of capturing Canadian or capturing like stories that are, you know, related to things that I've, I've seen and and stories you've just told. Uh, It is, it is, it's, you know, I I have an endless appetite for um, understanding and hearing, you know, good Canadian stories uh, of particularly in, in, you know, music and art, right. It's, 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 uh, it's such a, such a good thing, but you know, one of the things that I sometimes ask here, uh, I, I feel like I, I have to ask you about, it, which is just the, you mentioned it before, but your, the, um, the Rebuild the Wall album, only because, uh, you know, I, I do Zunior, and again, you've been so great about being involved in, you know, you know, putting albums up, and we've, you know, obviously we've, we knew each other long before Zunior, but if there's one record that people seem to come back to on Zunior since the day we put it up is that album. And I, I don't really know the story on how it came to be that you made it. It seems to be an album that sells all around the world. And maybe that's the obvious connection to Pink Floyd being in a, you know, a, one of the most important bands of all time. But what, what is the story behind that record? How did that come to be? <laughs> I like your way it sells all around the world. I think we sell a few copies. I mean, I get, I know, um, we do sell a few copies here and there. It kind of covers postage and the cost of, uh, the cost of, uh, making the, making the albums and should probably send the boys there another 64 bucks each or something like that. But, um, well in the, yeah, so that album, uh, it was, so Luther right and the wrongs came out of the weeping tile crew um, we can tell so stop playing around 98 and the wrongs had already made the one album I talked about. And we kind of were already in the middle of making our second album, Rogers Waltz. And it was during that time when we were recording that record and planning a tour thinking, well, we'll just keep the weeping tile van and we'll just keep going. And Sean's diving into some grants and we'll try to get, we'll use our connections to get gigs. And one day we were doing some overdubs on the Rogers Waltz and the power went out there's a lightning storm and the engineer Robin's like, I got to turn everything off for a bit. So Dan Curtis and I were um, sitting in the K 
kitchen and we we sort of talked about that Pink Floyd, The Wall was a country record. I remember sitting in the van with our guitar, we're waiting somewhere and I was, the wall came on, like, we don't need no education. And I just started riff on it and like, this is just like an A minor riff, this basic country tune. And we just started joking around and going through the songs. But anyway, on the day when the power went out, Dan and I pulled out the double vinyl and sat and like, made some notes and went through all 26 songs and went like, yep, this we could be in G, this one we could do this. And basically, out of 26 songs, I think there was only one song that were like, we can't possibly make this a country tune country tune why don't you just write some new music for it that was run like hell which you kind of yeah inspired by but it's not everything else is basically the chords from pink floyd that we make into the you know we just play them with a backbeat and half time or double time basically double time anyway because the the wall was recorded in the late 80s so it's got four on the floor disco going on if you know yeah which is so trans like straight up switch to country play it in double time right so uh, it's, it kind of laid itself out with it. And I know uh, it's obvious once you hear it. I and mean, when we started to tell people about it, they're like, you guys are smoking too much weed. Um, I remember being downstairs at the horseshoe and I ran into Greg Keeler from Blue Rodeo, who still, you know, passed in passing. And we, the wrongs played lots of openers for those guys as well. But I said, to, he's like, what are you guys up to, man? And I said, hey, Greg, I wanted to, we want to see if you would produce a record for us. He goes, yeah, man, for sure. Because he'd been doing stuff with the Sadies and, whole deal so he's like yeah man come up to the farm and i said okay and he goes well when do you want to do it and i said well we're just we're just uh finishing this uh with this re-recording of pink floyd's the wall as a country record and his face like falls and he just says forget it and turns around and walks away no way <laughs> <laughs> he just he, like i didn't want him to help with that record i was like no it's my and i'm like saying it's not that i have my own songs and he's like doesn't turn around <laughs> anyway yeah, so we just kind of we just plugged away. Grant uh, Grant Eche got us the same. Our, our man at the Funhouse had closed by then, but Grant had a little studio in his basement on uh, Division Street, and we went to Tech Savvy and bought an eight-track half-inch reel-to-reel and set it up in his basement. And we did all the drum tracks. We did out of the twenty-six tunes, we did had to do twenty drum tracks. We did them all in his basement um, on the eight-track and bounced them down to two tracks. Cam Giroux did. He'd never, we'd never really practiced or rehearsed. We just did it all on paper. And then we, Dan and I and John, we sat with Cam and we all decided like, okay, gonna, and I played the guitar, Dan played the guitar in the control room and Cam played along and looked at his notes as to, you know, where the dumb, 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 dumb parts. And anyway, he did, we did the whole session in two days and on drums, Cam did 12 songs in one take that are on that wow. record. And then we just took it out to Elgenberg in our little studio place there and plugged away on it for about six months. We thought we'd do it in a month, and it took about six months. But once we got into it, it was like a avocado or something. It just every layer revealed another layer, and we better bring this person in. We brought Matt Woodward in to do the guitar solo on on uh, Young Lust because Dan couldn't pull off that southern hoser better. Anyway, we just involved as many people as we could, and then when it was all said and done, and Sarah Harmer was um, all over it. Just she's around the house, so just bringing her in to. Can you sing this? Can you do this? And anyway, by the time we um, got it all, we got it all uh, mixed out at uh, Dave Lindsay's in Sydney, Sydney, and Robin and I and Sean are. Just, uh, we drive up to Hamilton and we piece it all together. And we've had all. It wasn't just the album, but there's all the in-between song stuff, like the chicken noises and the talking, and all the the story behind the wall. We switched it over to like a country boys version, as opposed to a war <laughs> yeah. war child from Britain. It's more like his like um, Pink is like some hillbilly kid who goes to the big city. So we took that and anyway, piece did all those foley bits, 
and then pieced it all together. And I remember sitting with our friend Steve Dahl and Sean and I and Robin, and we played it from beginning to end for the first time. And just looking at each other like, wow, this totally works. This totally works. So, and then, uh, you know, we made the mistake of playing it for some people. And next thing we got the deal with Universal and a deal with this record company in the States. And uh, it just kind of took on its own life. But it, it opened a lot of doors for us. I mean, we immediately, we played one or two shows where we played the whole record. Oh, no, let me, I guess the best part of the story is we finished it all. We took it and our friend, our man Skinny, who became our manager, Oh, skinny. He offered, yeah, Skinny 10, RIP, that's when he passed. Um, skinny kind of gave us, the, like, I can, this thing, you know, we'll, we can walk, work this, and Universal will get you guys, you know, tour money and all this stuff you need to get going. Um, and I went back and had the meeting, and Dan Curtis specifically was very much like, I don't know. <laughs> he was like, didn't those, your deal stories with Weeping Town aren't they're not very good. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Shut up, man. Anyway, um, we did agree on it, uh, but on the one condition that the label, I write a letter to Roger Waters and the Pink Floyd guys, and we say, hey, here's what we did, and here's why. Do you approve of it? So, and they said, if they if they don't, then we don't really want to, we don't want to put our name to it because we don't want to just be a cover band. We're not, we're probably not going to play all these songs live, whatever, you know, we just, we don't care that much about fame and we're not really those guys that are just going to do this unless Roger Waters says it's okay. So after a couple of months, things were getting built up, but we still hadn't really signed the deal. And then we finally got an email back saying Rogers listens to the record and approves. And then the other guys, Nick Mason and, Dave Gilmore and uh, the other fella and uh, Bob Ezrin sent me a nice email. So once we had all that in our arsenal, then it was we knew we were going to go play all over North America. But, you know, there's always going to be some crazy Pink Floyd fan who's going to get all up in our business because he hates country. So I wanted to be able to say, like, you know, fuck off, man. Roger Waters says it's fine. Like, who cares? Like, so we, um, that was our... That was well, that was handy. <laughs> well, that, 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 it really is an epic album and an epic story. I I, I realize you may have told that one or a few times. But I appreciate you taking the time to, to tell no that because I really did not know the full backstory. But that was that was amazing. So so as I said, I'm going to put a link to that one in the show notes so people can if they've never actually checked out that album. Yes, uh, it's going to uh, be right there. But again, you know, there's so many things that um, you've we've not talked about. Uh, you know, from the days in Kingston uh, and the back and forth email we had going, going into this, you know, like the, the nose ring circus show and, mm-hmm. and all the, a lot of common, so many obviously friends and things that we have in Kingston. I don't want to take up too much of your time. So I just, I, I will, you know, we're, we're not going to be able to get to those things now. Maybe we'll do it another time, but I do like wow. to end the conversation with, you know, this idea that, you know, you've, you've, you've lived a life in music. You've done all these amazing things. Um, and so sort of approximating a type of a life lesson at the end or something that comes, maybe something that you maybe learned coming out of music that you apply to your life. Um, or again, as I say, sometimes, you know, that you're, you're almost talking to a younger version of yourself to give, um, maybe that 20 year old that's just starting to play a guitar, uh, what, what they might, you know, maybe even advice or things that you (laughs) come out of all these, all these things that you've done. What would you say if you had to sort of put (laughs) put a put a dot on it well that's very that's very kind of you to say all that stuff dave i appreciate that it makes me feel worthy um i guess i would just say like what has worked for us and what has worked for me is is stay in the dark as much as possible like in a way i mean not like 
absorb as much as you can from around you. Like I'm a voracious reader, listener and all that stuff. But sometimes it's a balance of trying to understand something. If you understand it too much, it takes the fun out of it or it takes the magic out of it. It's kind of like in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy about how to fly is to not think about flying. And as soon as you do, you'll fall from the sky. Um, so I think there's a certain blissfulness. I mean, wasn't Beethoven one of those guys who didn't refuse to listen to anybody else's music? So I didn't contaminate this. <laughs> like, I'm no Beethoven. Let me. Tell you. I'm more like Beethoven the dog. But uh, I would say, like, the, it sounds tropey, but uh, like being true to yourself and your own uniqueness and being confident in it and surround yourself as much as possible with people that nurture that and that you can nurture that same thing in people you admire and are inspired by. And that allows you to bring inspiration to those that are maybe sort of static or stuck or perhaps content in their static and stuckness, but they do want to at least vicariously enjoy and it's and know that it exists, you know, that sort of magical Peter Pan playfulness uh, that artists achieve, I think. Um, you know, you need to, yeah, just stay in your lane <laughs> and make your lane your own. Okay, that was the song Come Over and Jam from 2015's Hearts and Lonely Hunters album. And earlier in the conversation, you heard the vintage song Luther Got the Blues from 1997's Hurtin' for Certain. Uh, that was a four track and that was the uh, embryonic track that actually appeared on a record. So that was an awesome story around that. And uh, I'll kind of finish up by saying that... Uh, it was really great to talk to Luther, and you could really hear the passion when he was getting into the conversation around Wakefield does Wakefield. So um, definitely make sure that uh, when that is fully realized uh, that we we will uh, all make a point of checking it out. And to you know to all of our friends in Kingston that that uh, that we made over the years playing and doing all, all so many things in Kingston, uh, I'd say stay tuned because there's probably going to be Kingston does Kingston coming. And uh, and who knows who will be part of that? But uh, I love the uh, the idea of taking it across the country, Luther. So good luck with that and all your music. And as I always say, make sure you get a chance to uh, check out Luther and all of his recordings. There's a whole bunch of information in the uh, show notes. And uh, thanks again for coming and listening to episode number eight of Salad Days. Thanks again, Luther. So 
you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe, like, and tell all your best music-loving friends about it. Today's episode was brought to you by Zunior.com and me, Lemonade Dave. I've done a lot of things in music over the years, but these days, I mostly make bottled lemonade by hand in Prince Edward County. I'm going to crack a cold one right now. But if you're ever in PEC, be sure to ask for it by name and tell them Dave sent you. Dave had it made Sitting pretty in the shade Heaven gave him lemons And he squeezed it into lemonade To think a drink without the trouble Of drinking drinks and shots and doubles He said, hark, I'll make it sparkle stuff to make it bubble lemonade like the sparkling lemonade if it's hot I'll get a bottle even if it's not I'll get a bottle that is